0: Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts From a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations, book recommendation episodes, and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and endorse, and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations, or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. In 2023, I am adding a new segment to my Tuesday episodes called read a Requests. Listeners can submit a book they loved and tell me why they loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads. There is a Google form included in today's show notes. I would love for you to send in a request. If you love to read, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group. To access additional content, including bonus episodes, and early reads and pre-pub author chats. For February, Lauren Willig's new book is one of my selections, as well as a likely story, a debut by Lee Abramson. The link to join that is in the show notes as well. Today I am chatting with Erica Bullstad about windfall. Erica is a journalist and filmmaker in Portland, Oregon. She spent a decade in Washington, D.C., covering politics and environmental issues for Climate Wire and the McClatchy Washington Bureau. In 2008, she was a Pulitzer finalist for her work at the Idaho Statesman. She was also a staff writer for the Miami Herald, where she covered Hurricane Katrina and other national stories. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, Scientific American, and many other publications. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... Listeners can submit a book they loved and let me know why they loved it, and I will suggest several similar books for them to read. While every book is unique and stands alone, certain elements of books we love really stick with us, and that is what I want to tap into, the aspects of the book that appealed to the requester and then focus on finding those elements in other books. Today's request is from Dana, who is at Southern Gal Reads on Instagram, and she selected The Stationery Shop by Marjan Kamali. The stationery shop tells the tale of two teenagers who fall in love against the backdrop of the political upheaval in 1953 Tehran. They are separated but reunite many years later, and the book explores loss, reconciliation, and the quirks of fate. Much like last week's book, Love and Saffron, I was excited when I saw Dana's selection because I thought the stationery shop was a fabulous read. Dana liked the book because she loved learning the history and culture of another place told through a fictional story. She says the story spanned a lifetime and, yes, had sadness, but ultimately was hopeful. My first recommendation is another book set in Iran entitled The Last Days of Cafe Layla by Donia Alban. Donia's writing is magical and lyrical. I was transported to Tehran, and particularly Cafe Layla, frequently feeling like I could visualize the cafe and its environs along with the Persian meals and foliage, something that I think will also appeal to Dana since she liked learning about history and culture in the stationery shop. I loved discovering details about Persian food and customs and the manner in which residents did their best to adhere to and keep alive traditions that had been banned for so many years under Iran's extremely conservative regime. The next book I am recommending as a read-alike to the stationery shop is a story set in Vietnam, The Mountain Sing by Nguyen Phan Quymai. While reading this beautiful book, I learned so much about the history of Vietnam during the 20th century, from the Great Hunger— to the land reform, to the Vietnam War itself, and the ravages each event rained down on the citizens of the country. Quay Mai's vivid descriptions and stunning writing transported me to Vietnam, and I felt that I had traveled along with the Tran family as they navigated their lives and attempted to survive unimaginable events. My favorite part of this book was gaining more knowledge about the Vietnamese culture, the food, the many proverbs that are woven into their interactions, the landscape, and their connection with ancestors. Kwei Mai has a second novel, also set in Vietnam, coming out in March, entitled The Dust Child, and I can't wait to get to it. My third recommendation is a YA historical thriller, I Must Betray You, by Ruta Sepetis, which may seem a little odd at first, but the incredibly strong sense of place and glimpse into Romania's history reminds me of what Dana likes about the stationery shop, a look at another country's history and culture. And the book does not read like a YA book at all. I Must Betray You is set during the time period leading up to Romania's 1989 revolution and the ousting of its charismatic but brutal leader, Nicolae Ceausescu. Insulated and living in constant fear, Romanians must survive under the oppressive regime that governs their country. There is little food, the electricity is randomly turned off and on, no outside media is allowed, and everyone worries about who they can trust and who they cannot. Before I finish, I want to quickly highlight one more book, a nonfiction title called Father of Lions, One Man's Remarkable Quest to Save the Mosul Zoo by Louise Callahan. Father of Lions tells the tale of the ISIS occupation of Mosul, Iraq, in the mid 2010s through the lens of Abu Lath, known as the Father of Lions, and his attachment to certain animals from the Mosul Zoo. While the story related to the lions and other animals is interesting. I found the descriptions and the details of Mosul's ISIS occupation and its residents' various responses to the occupation to be most fascinating and compelling portions of the book. While this one is nonfiction versus fiction, I felt it was a quick and fascinating read. Thank you, Dana, for submitting a read alike request, and I hope you enjoy these recommendations. And now, on to my conversation with Erica Bolstad. Welcome, Erica. How are you today? Oh, great, great. So excited to be here. I'm so glad you're here as well, and I cannot wait to talk all about Windfall. Why don't we start out with you giving me a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet?
1: So windfall begins in 2009 when my mother inherited some mineral rights right at the height of the Bakken oil boom. And I was super curious about why she inherited these mineral rights, which were basically the the right for an oil company to drill on the land that one of her ancestors owned. And so I was very curious about it. I covered environmental issues at McClatchy Newspapers, at a big newspaper chain in Washington, D.C., in the Washington Bureau. And I decided to go to North Dakota to find out why my mother inherited mineral rights. And that's basically what kicks off the book. The book is a search for answers about these mineral rights, about the woman who is behind the mineral rights or the source of them, essentially. And that's the great-grandmother in, um, in the subtitle of the book, Anna.
0: Did you know you had family coming from North Dakota, or was that news to you as well?
1: So I knew that we had some roots in North Dakota. My mother never really spent much time there, but her father was from North Dakota, and she went back there a few times with him as a child. So I knew that we had those ties. It wasn't a complete surprise that that we had an ancestor in North Dakota who homesteaded. That part wasn't a surprise. And there were family stories about, about that homesteading past, but I didn't know a lot about it. And I think that I had maybe been to North Dakota once before as a child, driving cross-country with my father. And so I, I, the first time I went to North Dakota in 2013, that was actually sort of the first time I remember actually
0: being there. Well, that was going to be my next question is whether you had spent (laughs) any time in North Dakota before you started down the road of this story. I have never been to North Dakota. It is one of only four states that I've never been to, and it's definitely on my list, but I don't think a lot of people have probably been to North Dakota. So what was that like going there, visiting it? Did it surprise you? What was all of that like for you?
1: Oh, it was you know, it was really amazing the first time that I went there because it was so new to me. And and yes, you are right. A lot of people, it is maybe not the least visited place in the U.S., but it is one of those places that when people are kind of marking off, have they been to all 50 states? It's usually the last one. And um, there's actually like a T-shirt that the Visitors Bureau will give you if, if it is your last state.
0: Okay, that is hilarious. So now yeah. I need to make sure it is my last date. I'll visit the other three and then I'll get to North Dakota.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the first time I was there, you know, I was there at the height of summer at the very beginning of August, and the days were really long. And I think the one of the the very first impressions I had of being there, especially in the northwest corner of the state where um, where the book is is largely set, I I just I think was I was almost overwhelmed by The space there, that wide open sense of prairies, of sky, especially just the sky itself told it's, it it felt like every day it was telling me a different story, you know, from minute to minute, hour to hour. And, and so the landscape itself was one of the, the most striking things, my very first visit.
0: I can imagine that because that's how I envision it. And it doesn't seem like it is very populated, so probably there is a lot of wide open state, just like a lot of those upper north midwestern states that are few people for a large amount of land.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, obviously, there are, you know, there are cities there, of course, too, small cities. Yes, of course. And towns and settlements. But yeah, it is a it is one of those places where you can probably drive all day and not really encounter a lot of people. Well, and I live in Texas,
0: and there are certainly parts of Texas that are the same way. So, yes, every state has all those different things. But I guess when I think about North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, I know you you can drive for a long time and not encounter anyone just because people are so spread out at times
1: yeah and and that's the place where this story is largely set is not very populated. I think there are maybe twelve, fifteen hundred people in this little county, and so it has been a quiet place for a long time. It wasn't at one point in the 1920s. It was, you know, there were maybe 9,000 people there, but it has been a very quiet place for for decades.
0: So that had to be interesting to you, having written a lot about environmental issues to then inherit this lease or this right. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was, it came with a lot of ambivalence. One of the things that struck me immediately when my mother first told me about it was, um, you know, she was so excited and I understood that excitement. And, and that is something that I really do explore in the book is kind of the source of that, just that sense of, of where windfalls come from and why as Americans, many of us think that they're, you know, almost are due, that they're going to be there, that they're going to happen. And so on the one hand, I really, I could understand her point of view being excited about this land that her family had ties to being the source of a potential of potential riches, especially at the height of the Great Recession. And so I really I could feel that and I, I understand that for, you know, everyone in that part of the country or in any oil patch state that gets that check that gets that lease you know it, it can be really exciting it can be sort of like you know it's a real bonanza i mean it's it's a windfall it is uh, it is unexpected wealth coming your way and then on the other hand you know i wrote about environmental issues i still write about environmental issues and climate change and you know it was just so clear to me that this inheritance came with a cost a real cost it was um it was something that that was apparent almost from my very first research trip to North Dakota something i knew from afar as well but once i was there you could see you know the way that just so simple things small the small daily living things like the way that all these trucks would be on the road in places that were simply not built for having all of these trucks the way that it impacted wildlife and water quality and then one of the things that's most striking and that you'll probably be really familiar with in Texas is how there are flares everywhere. You see, you know, the night sky lit up by these methane flares. And to me, that was the most obvious symbol of climate change. It was like, there it was right in front of you burning actual gases that contribute to the warming of our planet. And that that was one of the most visual uh, visually striking things to me on that very first visit, and one that i've I've never quite gotten over when I see it whenever I go back to north Dakota. Well, I'm
0: in Houston, so we don't see that, but <laughs> I do know what you're talking about, and yeah. I have family from Oklahoma and I've been in West Texas and those areas where that is happening. So I know exactly what you're talking about, but definitely it's not something we see in you know in our urban area. but the other thing that really resonated with me about your story was this idea that A town or a group of people can embrace something that is beneficial to them, but is going to be harmful long-term. And I felt like that is something that's been happening always, but we're learning about it more and more where places are realizing like tobacco or DuPont or some of these things that it's so beneficial in the short term to a particular place, but it is not beneficial to the world at large. And how do you balance those things?
1: Right. I, I don't have an answer to that question, um, but I, it is one I think about all the time. And I think about these, you know, the, the short-term costs of, you know, I don't, I don't I want to always categorize it as greed because, again, I, you know, I can place myself in my mother's position opening that envelope and here is this, you know, free money coming her way at a time of great financial need. And so I always want to keep that in mind, that for for many people, that it's almost impossible to make those calculations. Economists have whole fields of study looking into, you know, how we make these short-term decisions that are detrimental to not just us personally in the long term, but to society at large. And so I don't have the answer to that question other than that I think that some of the the actual economic calculations we make about what is of value to us in our communities and worldwide, you know, as people who live on one planet, that those those things need to be measured and calculated as part of any resource extraction that happens.
0: Yes, and really the burden should be put on those corporations, because as you mentioned, It's very hard for individuals, especially if that is their livelihood and they need some kind of income and they have to survive and provide for their families. All of that makes sense. But I think the fact that these corporations over and over again are able to get away with these different things and then almost bribe a town, bribe an area into not speaking up. I mean, there needs to be some way to cause that to not happen.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's built into the system though. You know, it's
0: absolutely, yes. It's baked in. (laughs) Yes. And so it's not an easy thing. I'm certainly not saying we'll just go right in and fix it, but it's a shame that there can't be a complete reframing of the way all of that is viewed. So those type of things don't continue to happen.
1: I think one of the problems, and you know, I explored this to a degree in the book and I I would love to explore this idea a little bit more, but one of the things that I I was really intrigued by was the sort of, Admiration amongst the American public for the oil tycoon and the like robber baron. (laughs) Um, I really, I tried to explore that as much as I could because I was really curious why we allow what is generally, you know, what very wealthy men um, almost exclusively. Why we allow that to happen? Why, as Americans, we think that that is an acceptable way that, you know, one person gets rich and everyone else suffers the consequences. And so I really, I tried to explore that a little bit. I looked into like, you know, the, these oil tycoons of the 1950s, 1930s, 1950s, you know, why they were written about so breathlessly in like Time Magazine and just kind of explored, you know, some of the films that, that also exalt them as, as these larger than life characters and, And why they were such objects of admiration, because I I think that there is, there's a lesson in that for us that doesn't just apply to say, you know, the oil barons of, of the world. It applies to the other captains of industry that dominate some of our tech world right now as well. It, It has become a part of our modern life as well, that same sort of hero worship. And so. I don't, I don't, it's another thing I don't have an answer for, but I am still curious about, you know, why the American character admires these figures so much.
0: The self-made man, the person that yeah. can start with nothing and mm-hmm. then become so wealthy and that, yes, that is so admired. When most of the time, if you really look into what they were doing, it was on the backs of many, many other people. Right, exactly. Well, let's talk about your book a little bit more in terms of the process for getting it out there. So you and your mother inherited this lease. And you went to North Dakota and you began investigating, trying to learn a little bit more about your great-grandmother. When did you decide to write a book?
1: So that's a good question. I was so, from the moment I heard about, you know, her getting this envelope in the mail, I was just so curious about it. And I kept a file. I had this little paper file on my desk, but also on my computer and in my email that was just titled The Prairie Project. And I think I have had that file since about 2009, where I just, anything I found connected to oil booms or family history, I just started kind of putting it in that file, whether it was the paper file or my email, et cetera. And so you know, I, I just kind of knew there was a story there. There had to be, who was this, you know, I was so curious about the woman that was at the heart of, of why we inherited these mineral rights. And, and so I think, I think I knew for a while that I had something, that there was something, and it wasn't until 2013 that I had the capacity, whether it was the financial capacity or kind of the, the space I was covering the right beat as a journalist and and I had some time to go explore whether there actually was a a full book here and so I I did I I used up some vacation time and um some airline miles and credit card miles and just booked a trip out there to kind of see what there was to see if I could turn this into into a book and in fact I think the moment I landed in North Dakota and started driving around, I, I think I really, really knew. And I knew, I just knew when I got on the plane to go back to Washington, D.C., which is where I lived at the time, I, I actually started crying, <laughs> tearing up a little bit because I, I wasn't sure when I would be able to come back. And I really wanted to pursue that story. And I really thought it was a book. And I just I, I just knew. I just absolutely knew.
0: Well, I think there's that pull to know your roots and to understand where you came from and what that was like and what those people were like.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm a little bit tough on genealogy buffs in the book uh, because, you know, I, I I think that that actually is a universal yearning. We all want to know where we come from, especially, especially if that part of our lives, um, if we're not that connected to it and the tools for finding that information out are much better than they were, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so so I, I came to understand that 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 yearning is very universal. It, you know, I think for for some people it might be it might just be a, you know, I want to know more about my past or my family or maybe answer something about myself in the present. And I think for me as a journalist, I I saw it as part of a, a bigger story, not just like my own family story, but I saw it connected to some of the bigger themes of being an American, of being being someone who inherited some sort of legacy that wasn't entirely asked for. And and so I I, I saw that there was a way of telling a personal story that would relay the, the bigger, broader. American themes that I was interested in.
0: And when you started researching Anna, you hit some walls. Was that frustrating? Did you did you wish you could learn more?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what happened is, well, what did happen <laughs> is uh, in the very first couple months of doing this research, I, I got a lot of information. I had um, my very first trip to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. I was able to un- to retrieve quite a bit of background information about Anna. And then I went back to North Dakota after that first trip, and I was able to get her file from the state asylum and um, the state mental hospital, and and I had those two things, and I felt as though at the very beginning of this process that that was that was like going to lead to so much more. I was going to find more, and that it was the beginning of of quite a you know quite a bit of information that I would find about her. And over time, I, I just, there just isn't much. We don't have any diaries or letters. There are only a few photographs. I have some jewelry that my mother had, you know, just a few other little dribs and drabs. And so on the one hand, it was frustrating to not, say, be able to reconstruct, you know, every little minute of her life. And then on the other hand, it was a, a really tragic life. And and I'm, I'm not... You know, as a storyteller, I, I really I think one of the things that was probably the saddest for me was was really accepting that I I wasn't going to have this story of this like triumphant homesteading um, great grandmother to tell. It wasn't like some sort of, you know, story of of triumph over adversity, which is generally like one of those storytelling trips that <laughs> makes for magic, you know.
0: Everybody wants to tell that story, right?
1: Exactly. I realized, oh, this is this is just it's just sad. It is a really tragic outcome. And so a whole book about Anna, you know, would be really it just it, it doesn't it doesn't have a happy ending. There is no way to spin that in any way other than that her legacy reflects could reflect a happier ending, you know, a century after her death.
0: So then how did you decide to change the trajectory of the story.
1: So, a couple things happened. Obviously, this book, you know, took about 8 years from start to finish and 9 years from start to publication. And so what I knew changed over time. What I had changed over time. Initially, I think I I thought I had a story about the oil boom and, you know, going and and finding my great-grandmother, and then it deepened over time as I began to understand that that there are bigger themes that, that I was connected to personally and professionally just as a human. And, and then there was sort of a, I had kind of a eureka moment, uh, probably in like 2015, 2016. And I was just talking to a friend about the project. The project had stalled for a while. It stalled for a couple of years and I, I, you know, I couldn't make any progress on it and was having difficulty finding a publisher and uh, an agent, all that kind of stuff. And I was talking to a friend about, you know, what do I have here? What is this story? And, and one of the things, I don't, I don't actually even remember how I, I lit on this or how I arrived at it, but I understood that the price of oil was, was how to tell the story, um, that that could be sort of this narrative chart almost that, that you followed over time. And that I think, I, think I, I really came to that understanding when there was a giant crash 2014 and 2015. And that's when I, when I understood that this is, you know, that there is a story here about what happens to places in boom and bust economies and that, that I could narratively, I could probably tell the story with each chapter beginning with the price of oil at the time.
0: Well, and that's something that's back in the news again, because it's been skyrocketing and back and forth so much in the last year. So it's a timely time for your book to come out.
1: Yeah. I mean, it never goes away, right? It's just, it is the, it is, it is literally our engine that drives, you know, our economy for now. I mean, maybe someday that will change, but, but yeah. So it just seemed, you know, it, and it, it just seemed to me like, oh, this is the timeline, the organizational timeline that I needed to create some sort of spine along the book almost.
0: Well, I love the cover. We were talking before we started recording about this stunning cover and the way the letters are written. It is all just so well done. Can we talk about how that came about?
1: Um, I'd love to talk about it. I wish I were talking to you next week because I think I'm actually going to be interviewing the artists behind it. Oh, that's cool. To write about it. Yeah, yeah. But I can tell you what I know, which is that Sourcebooks, my publisher, spends a lot of time on covers, they really consider it an art and a science. They analyze them. I don't know how they do it; <laughs> it's proprietary. But they do some analysis where they, you know, where they have uh, potential readers look at covers. And so, I know that they spent a lot of time with this cover. And in fact, I wasn't shown it until very late in the process. <laughs> um, it was a, you know, it was a complete surprise to me. And so. I know that they wanted to convey a sense of mystery with those with the lettering, you know, this sort of disappearing lettering. I know that that was part of it, and also a sense of that kind of wide open spaciousness that we consider a characteristic of the American West, and and then the map, of course, reflects just this idea that. You know, that this is a, this is in, to a degree, a a road trip story. And, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of driving in it. There's a lot of discovery on the road. I go places. Um, And then I think also the, the birds flying across the, you know, across the horizon is, is also a part of that sort of, sense of of flight of movement and you know I think there's there's probably even more I mean we've got the wheat field the the uh, you know the barbed wire all emblems of the American West and then I do not know how they so perfectly captured these colors but those pink and blues of the cover they're just like a sky you would see in North Dakota I mean it's just it is just stunning how. How brilliantly they captured sort of that feeling of a late, late afternoon in June or July in, um, in North Dakota. It's, I, I have photos that have those exact same tones in them. And, um, I just, yeah, I just really love what they did.
0: I always laugh because. When I'm out in the country and I'm getting photos of places that look like that and the sky looks like that, my phone never captures it looking anything like it actually looks. So I'm amazed that they're able to get it. Of course, they're using a much higher quality camera than my phone. But still, you know, it's sometimes hard to capture that in a photo.
1: Yeah, definitely. These are pros. They know what they're doing. (laughs) Yes, for sure.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't really consider North Dakota to be the West because it's right in the center Mm. of the country. Does North Dakota consider itself to be in the West? Oh, that's such a good question.
1: So I think that there is a dividing line that runs through North Dakota. And you could say maybe it's west of the Missouri River is the west, is where the west begins. And, you know, east, eastern North Dakota is definitely not the west. Well, I'll put that down officially, firmly. <laughs> it, is, it is not the American West. It's the Midwest. But in the part of North Dakota where most of this book is set, in north, the northwestern corner of North Dakota, it is most decidedly the West. And I think that's like, you know, there's like some people joke that it's like, which baseball team do you root for? Do you root for the Twins or the Mariners or something? I mean, there's like all these like sort of right. divide, dividing line kind of jokes about like, what is the West? But this particular part of Western North Dakota and to the South there and where the oil patch is, it looks more like it. it has actually quite a bit of varied terrain. It's not as if, if anyone's driven through, you know, Iowa or Kansas and parts of Illinois and Indiana, that's really, really flat. And you can sort of see how this used to be this like really flat prairie. When you get into this this part of North Dakota, uh, the, you're up really high. You're at a pretty high elevation, first and foremost. It's just kind of the, that's the way the continent slopes. And then it is just, there there are all these Formations from glaciers that moved there through there, and from you know, there's a different climate because it's part of a different river basin. I sound like such a nerd.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. But like, we go to Colorado, and I don't even really consider that the West. I mean, it's like oh. the mountains, you know. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm thinking West has to be a little farther over. Like Texas isn't the West, and it goes farther mm. west than North Dakota. So I guess it just <laughs> depends on what you're how you're characterizing it. But I'm like, huh, I would just not even, you know, having been kind of right in the center yeah. of the country. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. But I guess everybody can look at it differently.
1: I think West is an attitude as well. It's a point of view
0: and a, uh, a way of thinking. Hmm. Well, that is interesting. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Okay. So I have
1: a couple of books that I think are that are just really complimentary to windfall that I think other that readers who are intrigued by the stories from this part of the country might really like as well. And uh, one of them is called Boys in Oil by Taylor Broby. And he is from North Dakota. And it's it's a it is just a a, I think the subtitle is Growing Up Gay in, in North Dakota. It is just a I don't have that exactly right, but it is it is a beautiful memoir from someone who grew up in North Dakota about the changes that happened to that place and also his own, you know, discomfort in living in a place and growing up in a place that was so just so unwelcoming to someone who didn't fit into the kind of the the conformity narrative of that place. Love, I really love I love his book. It's it's wonderful. And then the other one is called Oh Beautiful. And it's by uh Yun, Yun. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. And it's a novel. And it is set in almost the exact same time period that my book is set in, um, kind of the early parts of my book. And I think I love it because it's about a journalist who goes back to North Dakota, who has some North Dakota roots and is looking for answers. Uh, she's writing a, a big magazine article, and she's looking for answers and confronts some of her own family struggles as well as you know some environmental issues and and it's just a it's just a wonderful fictional account that there are so many times I read things and I was like this was just like being in North Dakota at that time, so I really love both of those books.
0: I'm glad both of the books you recommend are set in North Dakota because I think When people find a place they haven't read a lot about and they read one story, often they want to find others. Mm -hmm. So that's wonderful that you have some guidance for that.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love to read thematically like that.
0: I do too. Well, Erica, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I enjoyed Windfall, and it was really interesting to learn more about the process for you getting it out into the world.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily...